Welcome to a podcast of a sermon delivered at the Unitarian Society of Ridgewood in New Jersey. Our congregation is a place where you will find inspiration in the richness of diverse beliefs and the power of community. Detailed information about the Unitarian Society of Ridgewood is available on our website, uuridgewood.org. Now I'll ask you to join me in the words for lighting the chalice. They're printed in your order of service and projected. We light this chalice. Go ahead and take a deep breath. In this space, you have an open invitation to slow down. Take a slow and deep breath. Listen to this sound as it rises out in the silence. Hear in it a call to hope, a call to joy, a call to life. Breathe and listen. Every so often, this space is filled with folks who may not know what our chalice is or why it's here. When I light the chalice at the beginning of a baby naming or a wedding or a memorial, I always explain what it is, why I'm doing the ritual, what it's meant to symbolize. The chalice, I say, is a symbol of hope, of light in the darkness. It's sunshine after rain. It symbolizes, I say, the spark within each of us, the best in each of us, the sacred, the divine, the holy. It symbolizes, I say, the vast humanity contained within our fragile, flawed, and mortal bodies. I light it, sometimes for new life, just born, already growing and changing and becoming. I light it sometimes for love, strong and building, making a new commitment. I light it sometimes for the ending of a life, passing into the unknown but never forgotten. Always, when I light the chalice, I feel the power of tradition and ritual. I feel what it means to participate in something larger than just me. And isn't that what all of our living is about, reaching beyond ourselves to something larger? The chalice is a common symbol that can hold all the fear and love and hope that enters this space every time we gather. Always, when I light the chalice here with you on Sunday morning, I light it for the light in each of you, the spark of the sacred in each of you, for the hope and the love and the courage that you bring. I light it for your lives, 
Today, as every Sunday, we gather grateful for these lives of ours and for the opportunity to share this time together. Every Sunday when we gather together, we make time for silence. In our busy lives, it's important to find stillness and quiet. Some of us use this time to meditate, others to reflect, others to pray. This is your time to listen to the needs of your heart. This morning, I'm going to coach you through taking some deep breaths. Then we're going to sing together, staying seated. That will bring us into our time of silence. And then I will speak some words to bring us out of our silence. So first, I invite you to put down anything you're holding. Find as comfortable a position as you can in your space. And take a deep breath in. Keep taking deep breaths, but try to go slowly. Count to three slowly as you inhale, and again as you exhale. As you breathe, let your body relax. Try as best you can to still the racing thoughts in your mind. Try to let the muscles unclench. And breathe. want to stay in the place of breathing and silence, do. If you'd like to join us in singing, the words will be projected.
to keep that. It can be hard in the noise and hurry of the world to hear the still and small voice inside us. The voice crying, sighing, longing and singing deep within, quiet but wanting to be heard. If we can still ourselves, we can listen and we can hear. It is the voice of hope, of peace, of joy and of love. May we listen for it every day. May the voice grow louder every day. And may we come to heed its call. So may it be. Back when I was in divinity school, I had a friend who used to quote frequently the mystic Julian of Norwich. Julian famously said, all shall be well and all shall be well and all manner of thing shall be well. I can picture my friend's face when she would say this, her head tilted slightly to the side, her voice soft. The words were delivered with the tender and loving intent to say, this too shall pass, life is long, there's time for things to be figured out. There is time for things to come right. I said, Julian, you are holy. You are holding my hand. I said, Julian, you are holy. You are holding my hand. She said, all will be well. And all will be well. All manner of things will be well. And I used to have the opposite reaction from what my friend intended. Rather than feeling comforted, I used to think, how could you possibly know? How could Julian of Norwich possibly have known? How could all be well given the state of my being, given my sorrow, given the state of the world, given the truth of what it means to be human? I said, Julian, do you not know, do you not know about sorrow? And Julian, do you not know, do you not know about pain? I said, Julian, do you not know, do you not know about hunger? And Julian, do you not know, do you not know about shame? I said, Julian, do you not know, do you not know about loneliness? And Julian, do you not know? Do you not know about disease? I said, Julian, do you not know? Do you not know about cruelty? I said, Julian, it's too much. It brought me to my knees. My colleague, the Reverend Meg Barnhouse, wrote the song you're hearing Kristen sing. And she captures perfectly my response, with all that is out there, with everything we face, how could Julian be saying that everything would be well? How could my friend say that to me? So the television show that we just saw a clip from, The Good Place, wrapped up its final episode just, I think, a week and a half ago. Have any of you watched it? Oh, 
wow, okay, guys, you have to watch it. Um, there's going to be some spoilers in what I say this morning, but I assure you that you should still watch it even with the spoilers, okay? Um, essentially, it's a sitcom about the afterlife, and true spoiler, it kind of ends with a universalist bent, so you definitely need to see it. Um, as the central four human characters navigate their experience after death, they confront what it means to be human. So the central plot of the show is that upon death, humans go either to the good place or the bad place, depending on what they have done in their life and how many points they have accrued. So our heroes have gone to the bad place, but are being tricked into thinking it's the good place as a form of new torture. I know. We learn eventually, though, that in fact, no one has reached the good place in hundreds of years because the world has become so complicated that every little decision we make has negative ramifications we can't possibly fathom. So the simple choice to see this movie or that movie can have a ripple effect that loses you points in the system and sends you to the bad place. So of course, our heroes discover that the system is completely broken, right? It doesn't work. It doesn't allow for anyone to reach the good place because it doesn't account for the unbelievable complexity of our world, and it doesn't allow for the challenge of being human. So that clip I showed centers on Michael, who begins the show as the demon who's trying to invent this new form of torture for humans, tricking them into thinking they're in the good place when in fact they've gone to the bad place. But by the end of the show, Michael has been granted humanity. That's the part you're seeing in that clip. So he can experience what the heroes who have become his friends have known as humans. And that short segment tries to show some of what he will learn and become being human. He'll learn what it means to make mistakes and have to do things differently in the future or not do them differently and suffer the consequences. He'll learn what it means to ask for help, what it means to have relationships of all different kinds, what it means to have to moderate expectations and to work hard and to try to do better and to never really know how things will turn out. He'll learn about the passage of time, the ups and downs of being human, and he'll learn the fundamental truth and central challenge that being human means living with the awareness that we will one day die. Yeah. Oh no. <laughs> Can you go back again? Help, but screw it. Okay, we'll try again. Go. Yeah. I don't know if what I'm going to say is going to hurt or help, but screw it. Do you know what's really happening right now? You're learning what it's like to be human. All humans are aware of death. So we're all a little bit sad. All the time. That's just the deal. Sounds like a crappy deal. Well, yeah, it is. But we don't get offered any other ones. And if you try and ignore your sadness, it just ends up leaking out of you anyway. I've been there. And everybody's been there. So don't fight it. So this is one of the central attributes of humanity that the show lifts up. We know that an end will come for all of us, and we know that the end is unknown to us. Most days, really, we can push that knowledge aside. 
We can live as if there weren't going to be an end. Most days we don't walk around fully immersed in existential dread, right? <laughs> but some part of us always knows from the moment we become conscious of it as a child, I'm sure many of you have watched as children in your life have reached that milestone of understanding when they first grasp what it means and the sadness is overwhelming. I've had my children cry themselves to sleep at night when they first have that realization, that fear at losing someone they love. From the time we first realize until the last breath we draw, we know. And this knowledge actually helps give our lives meaning. The philosopher Todd May helped integrate philosophy and ethics into the show. And as the show ends, they offer this from one of his works. Mortality offers meaning to the events of our lives. And morality helps us navigate that meaning. Life is hard and there are complications and sorrows and there is this fundamental truth that we live with each and every day and it's there no matter whether we retreat from the world or rise to meet it. Julian of Norwich was what was called an anchoress. She was a monastic woman who lived the majority of her life in the late 1300s. In Julian's world there was this renewed call for folks to devote themselves to private mystical living so that they could come closer to their God. So people genuinely believed in the power of prayer and meditation even by a few people to save the many. So an anchoress like Julian lived in an enclosed cell. So she, there were no doors in her room. There was one window. Semi-secluded from the world, she spent her days and nights meditating and praying and seeking some closeness to the God that she believed in. She did have all the creature comforts she needed, like she had blankets, she had food, she was fine. And despite her retreat from the world, she also maintained contact through her window with many people that she counseled and with the scribe who wrote down her visions. Julian retreated, but she didn't sever all ties. And in fact, what she spent her time doing was praying for the world beyond her walls. In her silence and her meditation, she did indeed experience visions. You can read all about them. In her quietude, Julian heard, we might say, the small voice within that she understood as her God. And she came to know that God as love. So those visions that she had of God, of Jesus, they actually taught her a sort of universal love. And they taught her this phrase, all shall be well and all shall be well and all manner of things shall be well. And it wasn't Julian who said it, it was the Jesus of her visions. And he was answering her cries about sadness and sorrow and sin. And he doesn't explain in the visions how it will be made well, just that it will. And it's really tempting to dismiss Julian as a young girl who lived in isolation and knew nothing of the world. But that would be an inaccurate description. She lived in a complex time. There was a second round of the plague that struck mid-century. Theological and political challenges made violence rampant. It was a time of chaos, of fear and death, and Julian knew, just as everyone in her time did, that her world was broken. She was not a naive soul. She said no one does not know, does not know about sorrow, and no one 
does not know, does not know about pain. She said, no one does not know, does not know about hunger. And no one does not know, does not know about shame. She said, no one does not know, does not know about loneliness. And no one does not know, does not know about disease. She said, no one does not know, does not know about cruelty. She said, I know it's too much. It brought me to my knees. In the show, The Good Place, our heroes are working at first to change themselves, to try and get into the good place for real. Alone, four humans in a world of demons trying to trick them into thinking they're in the good place, they learn that each of them was isolated in their lives on Earth. Their selfishness, though manifested in different ways, kept them disconnected from others. And our contemporary society, as full of chaos and fear and death and brokenness as Julian's, only underscored that isolation, that separateness. Julian kept herself apart from the world in order to reflect and pray and, in her way, help make the world better. In their separate place, the fake good place, the main characters of the show reflect on their lives, find true companionship, and come to understand ethics in practice in a complex world. And they do indeed improve. They get better. They learn to hear the small voice within. And what a metaphor for what congregational life can be. A place to reflect, to be separate but not apart from the world. To hear still the cries of loneliness and brokenness and sorrow and shame and pain and sin, cries that date back beyond Julian of Norwich. To hear those cries and find ways to heal them through connection, through kindness and through love trying our best, but never knowing how it will turn out. The heroes improve themselves and eventually they convince the powers that be that the point system is broken and they are granted the right to develop a new points system. In that new system, upon death, humans go through a series of tests to become the best version of themselves that they can possibly be. They learn and they grow and they change, even in the afterlife. It's restorationist universalism. Seriously, you have to watch the show. <laughs> um, after one has gone through enough tests and perfected oneself in some sense, they are granted access to the good place. Upon creating the new system and thus saving humanity, our four heroes are granted access to the good place. They arrive there only to find that eternity isn't all it's cracked up to be. They discover that when every day is easy, perfect, without challenge, the mind atrophies, the will shrivels, and life is no longer life. They find that without challenges, there is little to live for. The soul shrinks. Without the prospect of an end, the good place isn't actually that good. Without the complexities of living, without the awareness of our finitude, our humanity is lost. And so they build the doorway that you saw in that clip, the doorway on the edge of existence, beyond which 
there is something that no one knows. And when a person is ready, when they have lived and achieved and accomplished everything they long for in the good place, they walk through the door. And each person has to walk through it alone, just as we come into the world alone, so we exit it alone. But it isn't a moment of fear. It happens when a person is ready, when it feels right. This sitcom does such a beautiful job of lifting up questions of life and death with humor. It points to the central challenges of humanity while also reminding us that without them, we wouldn't be human. And over its few seasons, it stresses that what gets us through is love and friendship. How we live with regard to our own internal selves and with regard to the people around us, be they friend or foe, stranger or beloved, how we live can contribute to creating the good place here on earth. It is fundamentally human to wonder if all will indeed be well. And it is a liberating truth we can discover with care and attention through the building of friendships and community that indeed, through love, all will be well. All will be well not because of some magical change that will take place, but because inside of all the challenge and pain and sadness, there is something equally real, love and care and compassion. All will be well in Julian's visions, not because her God gives her a roadmap to fixing the world, but because her God is love. Love, the all-powerful, life-changing force that never ends. All will be well is not a declaration of naive optimism or empty hope. It isn't an expression of apathy or a rejection of responsibility. Once upon a time, I heard it that way. But these days, I can hear it for what I think it really is, an affirmation. An affirmation that although there is suffering, there is also joy. Although there is pain, there is also comfort. Although there is sorrow, there is also love. It's an affirmation of the light in each of us, the spark of the sacred in each of us. An affirmation of the courage and the love and the hope that we bring. Being human is a beautiful, fragile, and precious thing and gifts abound. She said, baby girl, do you not know? Do you not know about tenderness? She said, baby girl, do you not know? Do you not know about friends? She said, baby girl, do you not know? Do you not know about the spirit? She said, baby girl, do you not know? It's only love that never ends. And so all will be well, and all will be well, and all manner of things will be well. All will be well, and all will be well, all manner of things will be well. So may it be. Please remain standing and join in the words for extinguishing the chalice. They are projected and in your order of service. We extinguish this flame. And the energy of action burn bright in our hearts until we are together again. 
All shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. Go in peace.